If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Take something iconic like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, you'll hear a talk recorded at our Winchester History Weekend in 2019, in which historian and author Peter Caddick Adams is talking about the D-Day invasion. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me on a very grim evening of D-Day weather proportions. In many ways, this was the most difficult book I've ever found to write because I thought I knew the D-Day story backwards. Uh, And when I came to research uh, the story behind D-Day, I found there was a huge hinterland that many people uh, didn't know about, and certainly not me. And if I didn't know about it, most of the rest of the world uh, didn't either. Um, And that was the training and the preparation. Uh, And that is really what made the Normandy invasion so successful. So that's really the story of my talk tonight uh, and really the sort of comments that I want to to dwell around. Uh, Could it have failed? And if so, what might have have made it fail? Uh, And it is, of course, the singular campaign that we tend to associate with the Second World War in, in Europe. Um, beginning on one day, but but it leads right through, of course, uh, until the 8th of May 1945. So we can say that there were 36,525 days in the 20th century, and of those, perhaps no no more was more significant than the invasion of Normandy. Uh, And the whole uh, Allied effort in the Second World War, if you like, was geared up to the one inevitable day when we would have to hop across the Channel and invade continental Europe somewhere at some time, which is what the D-Day story is all about. 
And this afternoon, I was reading some correspondence with American colleagues, uh, and Charlie Schultz, who wrote the Peanuts series, um, syndicated all the way, all around the world, Snoopy and Peanuts, um, took part in the Second World War, took part in the Normandy invasion, and always said, as far as he was concerned, it was the most important day of the 20th century. So there you are, the world according to um, Snoopy uh, and Charlie Brown. But um, the, the figures are awesome when you think of how small the, the UK armed forces uh, are today. And of course, there's this massive misnomer that, that D-Day was completely dominated by the Americans. In a way, it's Britain's last hurrah. Uh, and the figures are remarkably even when we're talking about the, the number of land forces deposited from the sea or by air uh, into France. Um, the Navy is actually far more skewed in terms of 80% of the warships uh, were Royal Navy or Royal Canadian Navy, uh, and much, much, a much tinier percent uh, were from the US Navy uh, and other Allied navies as well. Um, but it's really the bottom figure that, that underlines the fact that the success of, of D-Day it is not just the story of one 24-hour period, but it's getting everybody across the channel because we not only have to assault France, but we have to sustain our army while it's there. And part of the hinterland of D-Day, the D-Day story, was the training and preparation that everybody went through for at least a year beforehand uh, and the genius of, of that planning coming together. Well, D-Day cost us uh, just over 4,000 soldiers killed, or allied personnel killed in that 24-hour period. But given that we were expecting a casualty rate killed on that first day of 20,000, we got off remarkably lightly because that's less than 3% of the total number who land in France on that particular day. Now, when you think of, it's interesting, the 20,000 figure equates almost exactly to the number of killed on the Somme uh, before, almost before breakfast on the 1st of July 1916. And that is what is haunting the Allied planners. Uh, and yet that would have been a price in their minds worth paying if we get a lodgment in France and that leads to the end of Nazi Germany as, as it in fact it did. So to get off with an even lighter uh, casualty rate was remarkable. And the reason for that uh, was the extensive training and preparation beforehand. Uh, and we had spent the better part of a year training nearly all the assault formations that would eventually land in Normandy long before we even had identified it was Normandy uh, and, we knew, and we knew exactly who would be landing on the coast at, at any set time. But one of the things I discovered in my research was that more soldiers died in training for D-Day than on D-Day itself, which is a remarkable statistic. And no one had ever tumbled to this before because no one had ever asked the question. Because the casualties trickled in from three different national forces, the Canadians, the Americans, and the Brits, divided between different armies, different corps, different divisions, and no one was keeping the tally. Um, throw into that the naval uh, losses in rehearsals, landing craft, uh, uh, accidents with ships, uh, planes coming down, uh, colliding uh, amongst all the Air Force personnel. The, the tally was just not there. But I arrived at at least 5,500 people who were killed in the preparation. 
And that is why D-Day is so successful, because the training was necessarily brutal and turned out to be as brutal, if not more so, than the events that unfolded on the 6th of June, 1944. And my story started when I was 14 in 1975. Uh, when I did something very unusual then. My parents uh, allowed me to go on holiday with some friends who restored Second World War military vehicles, very unusual hobby in those days. Uh, and we went over to Normandy, and we went to Sword Beach, and I found this bizarre man striding up and down the sands, playing the bagpipes. And he was Piper Bill Millen, and he, here he is in the big picture in the foreground. There's his pipes. Uh, and he eventually... Uh, introduced me to his brigade commander, Shimmy Lovett. There he is, uh, his picture down there, and also striding through the surf. And this is the first picture taken on a British beach on the morning of D-Day. This is Sword Beach at about 8.30 in the morning. Millen about to go down the ramp into the sea. And he, as, you know, I mean, this, this was the ancient mariner stuff, you can imagine with me. He said, Peter, well, I got down the ramp. And the first thing I remember was the channel played havoc with my anatomy because he was wearing a kilt. <laughs> and he said, I remember the kilt. It spread around me like a tartan jellyfish. But Lovett earlier in the year had said, Millen, you're going to come and invade Normandy with me and I want you to bring your bagpipes and play us ashore. And Millen, then 19, when I first met him, he then was the age I am now. So this is the sort of connectivity. Bill said he knew that there'd been a war office directive which said that the, the Scots regiments would no longer go into battle wearing a kilt, and certainly not with bagpipes, because that didn't work out in modern war, and your piper would be the first man to be killed. So he said to Lovett, um, uh, Brigadier, you know, sir, this is... This is um, we, you know, the War Office don't believe in this anymore. And Lovett said, ah, but that's the English War Office. It doesn't apply to us. <laughs> so he had no option. So there he was. Uh, and this is how I remember him, striding the surf. He's now no longer with us. But that, that was my introduction to a D-Day veteran at the same time as, as my first introduction to a D-Day beach. And since then, I've been very lucky. I've, I've probably spoken to a 1,000 veterans who took part in the Normandy invasion in, in one way or another, or civilians who watched it or witnessed it were part of it somehow or other, uh, never mind the Germans, and all different nationalities. Um, and here in the left-hand picture, Joe Cattini, um, the Hertfordshire Yeoman rear gunner, he was never going to land on D-Day. Um, and he drove a four-ton truck down to Southampton docks full of ammunition uh, and was going to come in in a later wave, and his RSM, Regimental Sergeant Major, spotted him and said, ah, Catini, you're landing tomorrow. He said, I'm not, sir. He said, you are, we're short of a driver. Um, you're landing tomorrow. And that was it. He had no preparation, didn't know how to waterproof the vehicle. So he drove his vehicle ashore uh, on the uh, afternoon of D-Day. And on the, in the right of that picture uh, is... Um, uh, Richard Llewellyn, who was the, a young midshipman navigator on a cruiser called HMS Ajax, just off the beach. And he said, uh, he said Peter, um, have you asked me about the plan B? And I thought, and he said, well, you know, we were told by Admiral Ramsey that it was going to be an absolute bloodbath, and we had to prepare a plan 
to evacuate everyone if it went wrong. And I thought, God, I've never asked anyone that question. We just make the assumption that D-Day is going to be so successful. I've never sat down with veterans and said, what was the plan if it all went wrong? And I said to, to Richard, what was it? And he said, we were told we would bring the cruiser in as close as possible so that the, um, the keel would be bumping into the sand. We'd lower all the boats and the rafts. We'd get as many people back off the beaches onto the ship, engaging with the Germans, and we'd head back to England. Um, and of course, Admiral Ramsey, who had issued those orders, had been in charge of the Dunkirk evacuation in 1940 and knew exactly what he was about. So it just shows you, you know, I've, I've been a professional military historian for 20 years. Um, and my business has been with soldiers either wearing uniform or interviewing them. And I'd, I'd never got round to asking the right question to get that particular piece of information. Um, at the top, the French get left out of the picture. This is Jean Jam, who actually became a naturalised Brit after the war and is now John uh, Jam. Um, but at age 16, in 1944, his schoolmaster said, what are you doing in the summer holidays, Jam? Uh, and uh, Jean said, I'm not sure. And he said, you're coming to the forest. You're going to join us in the woods. And that can only have one connotation, which is you're going to join the resistance. So he found himself in the woods with the partisans in the summer of 1944. Uh, and one day, armed with a pistol, he came across two German officers uh, and took them prisoner and marched them back to their camp. Uh, and as a 16-year-old taking two German officers prisoner with a pistol... Uh, he was awarded a, a Croix de Guerre, awarded personally by Charles de Gaulle. Wonderful story. He's still with us. Uh, and down here, Gunter Harm, 21st Panzer Division. Now, he'd been awarded a Knight's Cross personally by Rommel in the Western Desert. Uh, and I said, so, you know, what's the story with the Knight's Cross, Gunter? And he said, well, um, I was manning an anti-tank gun, uh, and I shot, or we shot, a lot of British tanks up. Um, but I didn't deserve the medal. And I said, why? And he said, well, I wasn't firing the gun. I wasn't in charge of the gun. We had an NCO for that. I wasn't part of the gun. I was, I was the youngest, so I brought the ammunition up to the gun. But because I was the youngest, I was 19 at the time, it was very good propaganda, so they gave me the medal. I, and it, you know, it just shows you, you know, the, uh, the, the, the German propaganda machine uh, at work. Uh, and he said, uh, he said, well, I was just behind the beach on D-Day with my divisional commander, General Feutinger. Now, he was a complete loss. Uh, he was a, an appalling military commander, good Nazi, bad soldier. Uh, used to spend all, all of his time in Paris with his mistress. And he was a, an appalling soldier, but he liked to surround himself with heroes to cover up his own flaws and shortcomings. Uh, and that's why that division had such a high number of Knight's Cross winners uh, within it. So all these insights were absolutely fascinating, and it just shows you, you really got to, while, while they're around, talk to those who were part of this great story. Um, but our story goes back um, not to the 5th of June, which is where most of the books begin. Um, our story goes back right to 1940, um, because this is where the seeds are on the realisation that we will one day need to cross the Channel and enter France again. And on the 18th of June, uh, 1940, well, the 18th of June of, of any year, um, all the Brits in the audience will go, ah, oh, that's Waterloo Day, hooray, can I have a hooray? Hooray! 
But if we were in France and you uttered Waterloo, you certainly wouldn't get a hooray. But if you uttered the 18th of June, you would get, oh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful, because this is the day that Charles de Gaulle broadcast on the BBC to France from London saying, all is not lost. France is about to surrender. We've had an awful setback. However, this is not the end. Uh, and I appeal to all Frenchmen to try and make your way to join me and begin the fight back because we will return and liberate our country. And the effect on the French, who'd had nothing but bad news all through the month of May, uh, which uh, had led to the swastika being unfurled in Paris, couldn't believe this, but de Gaulle, very little support at first, was the first person to light this fuse that would eventually uh, ignite the torch uh, of liberty. So his speech on the 18th of June is absolutely seminal. It's one of those uh, groundbreaking moments in French history, and all, all French children are taught about it today. It's after, it's the same day that Churchill is standing up in the House of Commons and talking about, this was their finest hour. But de Gaulle has arrived the day before. Uh, he landed at Heston Aerodrome, just south of London, with no legitimacy, no money, but enormous self-confidence. Uh, and it was to his immense shame ever after that it was from London and over the medium of the BBC that he was broadcasting to France. And, you know, he then becomes, if you like, King of France the rest of his days. Uh, and, but oddly enough, through the projection of, of the British. So our story starts in 1940 because that's when we first realised we are going to have to fight back. And this is within days of Dunkirk having happened but it's very much an Anglo-French realisation right from the word go. But we can't do anything until our American cousins join uh, the story. Uh, and what's almost faded now from the uh, institutional memory we have in the United Kingdom is of the massive numbers of Americans who come over uh, to the United Kingdom. It starts as soon as America finds itself at war with Germany uh, at the end of 1941, beginning of 1942. And by 1944, there are three million young Americans, mostly men, in the United Kingdom. Uh, and even more than that, pass through the United Kingdom during the Second World War. That's what the special relationship is all about. It, 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 it's less military uh, and it's far more social. Uh, and initially, it's mostly in East Anglia where, where they congregate. They, this is uh, members of the 8th Air Force, uh, which in East Anglia becomes the cannon's mouth where all the bombers go off up to raid Germany. But by 1944, counties like Hampshire and Wiltshire, um, every... Uh, what, every tenth person is American and sometimes more than that. Because so many of our young men in the Second World War by 1944 are all themselves out of the country fighting in the Mediterranean, in Burma, uh, fight, uh, fighting with the Royal Navy, uh, deployed elsewhere with the RAF uh, or the Merchant Navy. Um, so, so many of our young men are away. And that meant that uh, of the uh, population of young men in the United Kingdom between 18 and 40 during the war years, 18% are Americans. 
And that's a faded from, from memory. Go back 10, 20 years, uh, and a lot of people would remember seeing the Americans, forming friendships with them, them camping at the bottom of um, people's drives, uh, being billeted on them. Um, but that's, that's almost sort of faded. But, but many ties remained after the war with families staying in touch uh, with the, the, uh, the Yanks billeted on them. Well, once the Americans are here, and that, if you like, is a blank check to the endeavor that will um, begin to unfurl that we now know as the Normandy invasion, uh, we can assemble the command team. Uh, and the command team is only announced to the world in February 1944, 1st of February, here it is, You've all seen versions of this um, well-known picture with, with the, uh, the senior uh, commanders, Bradley, the American, Admiral Ramsey, uh, Supreme Naval Commander, uh, Tedder, who's deputy to Eisenhower, uh, who's the Supreme Commander, but Montgomery thinks he's the Supreme Commander. Um, Lee Mallory, Supreme uh, Air com Component Commander, um, uh, and Bedelsmith, who is the Chief of Staff. And there they are assembled in Norfolk House, which is in St. James's Square, very forlorn at the moment, looking uh, because it's empty, but the plaque proudly on the front door saying this is where Normandy uh, was planned and executed from. And eventually, their staff. Any idea amongst you how large the staff of these guys were once the Normandy invasion gets underway? A few dozen? A few hundred? 5,000? A couple of thousand? Shafe? By 1940, by when they move over to France, um, at the end of the summer of 1944, numbers 20,000 people. The only place they can go is Versailles because there is nowhere else uh, that's large enough. In fact, the French refer to them as the Society des Hôteliers Alliés en France, Chef. Um, the Society of, of Allied uh, Hoteliers en France because there is just so many of them. Um, and that's how you keep a coalition operation show on the road of the size of the Allied invasion of Normandy. Um, so this is the tip of a very, very big iceberg indeed. And the most important part in the lead-up, and certainly in terms of getting them across the channel and then sustaining them, is the naval component commander, Admiral Ramsey. And for my money, he's one of the unsung heroes. Well, here's his operations orders, the first draft, which comes out on the 10th of April, 1944. Um, it's four inches thick. It numbers 1,400 pages. It's slightly longer than my version of uh, my history, <laughs> which just shows you're getting value for money, word for word. Um, this is because Ramsey is the surest hand in the world at managing huge armadas of small boats uh, and getting them to do something in a coordinated fashion for warlike purposes. Uh, Admiral Ramsey had been Vice Admiral Dover in 1940 and was in charge of what became Operation Dynamo, the evacuation from Dunkirk, for which he's knighted. Um, he oversees Operation Torch, which is uh, the Allied landings in North Africa in 1942, uh, the invasion of Sicily in 1943, and he is the man. Now, his proudest moment in the Second World War um, comes after D-Day, uh, and in his memoirs, he writes that his proudest moment uh, was, in fact, when he's restored to the active list, because all this time he's a retired officer and only being paid as a retired officer. Cheapskate British Admiralty, even in the Second World War. But Admiral Ramsey is, is not as well known as he should be. Because he dies in an air crash, very sadly, in January 1945, 
He doesn't, uh, uh, he's not awarded uh, any of the peacetime honours. He would undoubtedly have been Viscount Ramsay of somewhere or other um, after um, VE Day. But he misses out on that because he, he's dead. And so his memory has faded, again, because perhaps he's not a fighting admiral, if you like, he's a logist logistician. But actually, I, I would submit one of the most important ones. Now, his, he not only gets on very well with the Americans, here he is with Admiral John Hall in, in charge of the, the US Navy component for D-Day, but he gets on very well with Churchill, because their story is so much deeper. And this is what I mean about hinterland and asking the right questions. So you read a bit of biography about Bertram Ramsey and you don't get the full picture. And so I dug a bit deeper. Now, Bertie Ramsey's father was a lieutenant colonel commanding a cavalry regiment on the northwest frontier of India at the end of the 19th century. And into that cavalry regiment, uh, so Ramsey used to go in the long vacation, sp spend time with his father and his father's regiment. And he got on well with the newest young subaltern who arrived in that cavalry regiment, who was... Second Lieutenant Winston Churchill. So by 1944, the two go back and have nearly 50 years of history between them. Um, it's Ramsey who very secretly, we now know, goes to Churchill in, in the appeasement into all years and tells him how little is being spent on the Admiralty uh, and military spending. So they, they have this connection. Uh, and so Churchill has complete and total faith in Ramsey, and Ramsey knows that and can ask the impossible and get it. And it's that kind of informal chain of command as well as a formal one um, that makes the, the, the way of commanding D-Day so successful because it's not just people who, who've risen to the top of their profession. There's more to it than that, and particularly uh, with the Ramsey connection. Well, D-Day is... is fraught, as I've said, um, not, uh, the preparation for D-Day is fraught with, with casualties. And an illustration of this is um, at, Studland, at Studland Bay on the 4th of April 1944, uh, in a special bunker built for all the, uh, the, the high-ups to witness the first major exercise of assaulting England uh, for, in preparation for France. Um, uh, and so large numbers of troops uh, and aircraft uh, fire with live ammunition uh, against the coast. This is Studland, Swanage area. Um, and His Majesty King George VI, Winston Churchill, Eisenhower, Ramsey, they're all in this specially built observation post. It's still there. Um, and at the end, unleashed, are the swimming tanks. Now, this is a, um, a device specially devised for D-Day. These were the original training tanks that the 4th 7th Dragoon Guards used. Um, by D-Day, they're actually using Sherman tanks. But into the water rumble these tanks. Uh, and then the sea state suddenly changes. Uh, and in a flash, six tanks have gone down with their crews. Um, and it's just you know, a minor blip, you might say. But this kind of drain is happening every single day. Uh, and the thing about that particular day, the 4th of April, is the Air Force are undertaking Operation Dream, which is where um, the airborne forces are rehearsing with um, gliders towed through the skies and a Stirling bomber catches a tree, cartwheels into the ground, killing all seven on board. But also the horse glider, uh, it was towing, comes down as well, killing all 28 on board. And that's just one day, two separate incidents. And this is happening 
throughout the Canadian and the US forces. Now, this is a decent deliberate wastage. People are training hard, but the parameters of what's acceptable, what's not, of pushing the envelope in terms of danger is much, much more extreme because this is the Second World War and we have got to make D-Day work and you only have one shot at it. And this is all about removing Nazi Germany. So the odds are so high that you just push and you are bound to get setbacks like this. But as I say, you know, the justification we can now look at from 75 years later is that that kept the D-Day casualties incredibly low and really helped to make the whole thing succeed uh, in the first place. Now, you also have to be prepared for the unexpected. And in 1943, um, no one really noticed the arrival of Ferdinand Mischke's book on paratroops. Now, he is a, a military theorist. He's a young Czech officer attached to free French forces. Wasn't involved in the D-Day planning at all. Um, he's already written a book about Blitzkrieg, the theory of how it works. And in 1943, he publishes Paratroops, which is all about the theory of what airborne forces have done in the Second World War to date and how they might speculatively be used in the future. And on page 43, he throws up a map of uh, an unnamed piece of coastline uh, onto which you might graft three paratrooper divisions uh, accompanied by a seaborne assault, and no one took any notice until the beginning of 1944 when, ah, that's the Normandy coastline, there's the Cherbourg Peninsula. Those are where our three divisions are going to land. That's where the seaborne assault is going to happen. How could he possibly know this? And he didn't, he guessed, he speculated. But what do you do about the coppers that have gone to neutral Spain and Portugal and Sweden and Switzerland? You can't recall the books because that will just draw attention to the fact. So what happens is, is we have to descend by glider and drop in by parachute and hope there's not a welcoming party there. Unfortunately, there isn't because the German defense attaches were more keen on their cognac and their, their Calvados uh, than buying books. But it's that sort of sheer element of, of, of coincidence, beloved of novelists, but of course it never happens in real life, does it? But it did. So much of our D-Day story takes part, or uh, the preparations, takes part on the Devon coast around Slapton Sands. Long stretch of coast uh, on, in South Devon. Um, and the reason for it is because the, this long stretch of beach replicates very much the appearance of o Omaha Beach, which is where American Five Corps will land uh, on June the 6th, or D-Day, whenever it's going to be. Um, but the salt marsh behind Slapton Lay also replicates the flooded areas behind Utah Beach, where Seven Corps will, uh, will um, arrive. Um, so both beach forces rehearse on the same stretch of coast on all alternate weeks. Um, and this is the scene of the most famous D-Day disaster that everyone does know about. This is Exercise Tiger at the end of April, uh, when the, the guys going to Utah Beach do their final rehearsal. This is the whole seven, hold of Seven Corps on Slapton. Uh, and on their way there, some German motor torpedo boats have come across the channel, not realizing what they've stumbled over. They think this is just a coastal convoy, uh, loose a lot of torpedoes, uh, expend a lot of ammunition, sink a lot of landing craft, uh, and nearly a thousand Americans are killed. 
Now, the security lockdown, because this is so close to D-Day, is in incredibly intense. And ever since, there have been all sorts of um, uh, sort of conspiracy theories about why the lockdown happened and, and is this concealing something even more? I mean, but given that this is six weeks away from D-Day, of course, the operational security angle is extremely important. We can't let the Germans know what damage they actually caused. Uh, they sink three large landing ship tanks uh, the, our strategic reserve is three, so that's just gone. Any, any other damage or accident will start to imperil a landing fleet because we've now lost our reserves, um, who, who uh, in terms of numbers, have just been sunk. Um, but, you know, what's the, how is this going to affect morale? And more importantly, there were six American officers who had the real D-Day plans on them who were posted as missing. Uh, and we have to trawl, trawl the seas until we actually discover all six of them uh, and all the plans intact. But there's a chance that the Germans have worked out that these are landing crafts. So again, is the cat out of the bag? So a huge amount of sort of um, anguish, uh, particularly you know, on the part of Eisenhower. Uh, and fortunately, we get away with it in terms of the Germans not realizing. So it's unfortunate for those who are caught up in this. But the bigger picture, the whole of D-Day at risk, uh, fortunately, doesn't come to fruition. However, that's just one of the beach exercises uh, that took place. And I discovered that when the other four beach final, the other four beach final rehearsals uh, were undertaken, nobody knew about these, including myself. I'd never heard of the Fabius exercises, which were the equivalent of Tiger, but for each of the other beaches. So this is where the guys going to Omaha Beach, the Americans, do their final assault, again at Slapton, same place. This is the, the five core guys. This is exercise Fabius 1. And on the same day, exercise uh, Fabius 2 saw the Gold Beach um, 50th Division people rehearse, uh, those, the Canadians uh, going to Juneau Beach, and the British going to Sword Beach, all four beach forces do their final exercise on the same, uh, over the same period of time. This is the largest amphibious assault rehearsal ever in military history. Each force is over 30, 30 is between 30 and 35,000 men. So well, well in excess of 120,000. If you count all the naval personnel and the Air Force personnel, well over 150,000. It's, it's as near a, uh, near a run thing to D-Day as possible. Uh, and this is early um, uh, May 1940, 1944, so uh, just a month before D-Day. At uh, the same time, we lock down the south coast. So everybody living within a 10-mile strip all along the south coast uh, cannot leave. Uh, and if you don't live there, you cannot enter. Police man all the railway stations. There are roadblocks. Uh, if you arrive, you're turned back. Um, and uh, even the Royal Mail is slowed down. In those days, when the penny post actually meant something arrived the same day, people would have taken notice. I'm not sure it would have made much difference today. But uh, in 1944, that, that people were, were not even aware necessarily that that was happening. But that's how acute the operational security requirements were. Because everybody along the South Coast would have seen all the invasion troops preparing, marching up and down, doing their final sort of rehearsals. And it was clear to everyone that something was about to happen. So if you lived in Weymouth, you would have seen this particular scene um, on the, the left. Uh, and if you go there today, this is a picture I took um, earlier this year, uh, you can see it totally hasn't changed. All the buildings are the same. 
Uh, even the lifeboat station is, is uh, uh, in place uh, as it was in 1944. And these are the guys who are going to go to uh, Omaha Beach. Uh, and around the corner uh, on the Esplanade in Weymouth, Dorothy T, Dor Dorothy's Tea Rooms is still uh, in business. Uh, and these are Colonel Rudders, Rangers, who are about to scale the Point de Hoc, uh, going along the front to their landing craft. Uh, and the scene is completely unchanged today, apart from the, the palm trees. Now, I, the, the average age of, of, of the young men about to cross the channel is 21 years old. <laughs> They've all done some meaningful military training for at least the previous year, tough, hardened in battle, given everything they need and all the equipment. Let's cross the channel and have a look at their opposite numbers wearing field gray. Well, this is where I take issue with a lot of my military historian colleagues and opposite numbers. Weapon for weapon, tank for tank, even in 1944, its equipment decisively outclassed that of the Allies in every category, save artillery and transport. I'm not so sure that's right. The average age of the Germans in 1944 in Normandy is 36. Rommel had met a gunner who was in a gun emplacement age 58. They had not done much meaningful military training. In fact, all military training for the German 7th Army in Normandy had ground to a halt once Rommel arrived because he realized the defenses were so poor, he got his soldiers digging trenches and building the defenses rather than undertaking military training. Now, a lot of the very young had barely 12 weeks from being inducted into the German armed forces to finding themselves posted to Normandy and starting to dig trenches. So there's a huge disparity. Robin Nelens will go down the same route, as will many others, in terms of kit, training, tactical ability, tenacity, and sheer guts, fighting with or without air cover or naval gunfire support, and hampered by interference from Adolf Hitler, the German army was undoubtedly the best, in the best army in the field, maybe after D-Day. But before D-Day, the German army is very much a uh, second-class army of those who have escaped Russia or have been to Russia and are shredded either physically or mentally. Um, they have the worst of all equipment. But actually, having spoken to, to young Germans who were there, um, Heinz Zivolo and Franz, Franz Gockel, um, who both find themselves in different bunkers of the same German uh, position on, on Omaha Beach, they remembered the fact that they had done absolutely no military training whatsoever, uh, and that their entire time from when they arrived in Normandy in early 1944 was all about digging. Uh, and so they were completely ill-prepared uh, for the Allies when they arrived. German mobility, because they took the decision uh, early on um, uh, that they would, they would be short of petrol, they would be short of equipment, uh, meant that their mobility relied on bicycles or horses. The Allies took, of course, not one single horse to Normandy. The Germans uh, had over 120,000 horses uh, spread around uh, northern France. Um, because they were short of petrol, uh, and because the Germans had such a low number of vehicles, even before the Second World War, if you go around the uh, European countries, Germany had the lowest car ownership per head of population, which is completely at odds with the propaganda they've been feeding us. Um, so most Germans don't know how to drive. So if you give them a vehicle, they can't even use it anyway, whereas most Germans are familiar with bicycles uh, or horses. 
And although our understanding of their defenses is big gun emplacements like this one on the left, uh, the reality is this small two-man little concrete thing called a Tobruk is m far more the reality uh, of the German defenses in Normandy, and they have no standardization. Here's a position off Sword Beach, photographed just after the war, uh, and illustrating the point that actually the Germans had over 250 different kinds of bunkers. They built any old how, uh, and that doesn't make for the best use of your resources because you want one modular standardized thing that you can just build and put in place. The other problem is, is that, as I've already alluded to, many Germans are very happy that they're not in Russia. The fact that this photograph is fuzzy illustrates my point very well. The chap on the left, I think, t tells it all. Um, his Normandy so far has been very, very comfortable because he's not in Russia. Uh, and and the, the allure of, of Calvados, Armagnac, Bergerac and Bone, this old man came rolling home, you can just see uh, is appealing to this particular group of officers there's the, there are the maps in the background of Normandy, but um, their minds are on other things, and you can you can probably understand why some of them have been billeted in France uh, since 1940, and so their their guard is down. And some of the some of the Germans, 20% of the German Seventh Army in Normandy, aren't even German. They're the waifs and strays from Russian prisoners of war camp um, who've recruited from as far away as Mongolia. Um, there are Poles, Czechs, Ukrainians, um, all sorts, Georgians, uh, Armenians, all sucked up into the German military machine given field grey because the option quite often was stay in the prisoner of war camp and you probably, your, your, your rations will mean that you'll probably die or come and join the German army. So they don't really get much of a choice and their motivation is certainly suspect. But the real proof of the pudding, if you like, is just to look at the figures. If we take a snapshot of the German armed forces on the eve of D-Day, uh, we can see that there are 58 divisions, formations, call them what you will. We could quibble about how, you know, what size each one is. But we can compare that with the fact that 228 are elsewhere, mostly on the Eastern Front. So Berlin and Hitler's eyes are not on France, but are on elsewhere. The real sort of um, challenge to the Allies is actually the weather. So this photograph tell, talks, uh, portrays the storm of February 1905, um, which, was, which shattered the Normandy coastline uh, and hit all the sort of areas, here, here it is at Aramanche, where the artificial harbour will be installed, uh, will hit all the areas where the invasion is going to happen. Uh, and this was get, worked out to be a once in a 40-year event of being a similar storm um, at the turn of the century, uh, the, uh, sorry, in the 1870s. Um, and so these happen on a regular basis, about 40 years apart. So bingo, what's going to happen in 1944? So extremely nervous about this. So we know that D-Day is postponed because the weather is bad. Now, is, the, is, is bad going to equate to this? And that's the thing. And Eisenhower gets the message, actually, the storm is going to ameliorate, and we spot the fact that the weather is improving quicker than the Germans do. Uh, and so Eisenhower postpones D-Day by 24 hours, and we go on the 6th. But he could have postponed thinking the weather was going to get worse, uh, and could have postponed until the 17th, because that's the next time the tide and the moon and things like that visibility would have been right. 
And the trouble is, had he done that, we would have landed everybody on the 17th. And on the 18th of June, impossible to predict, the worst storm of the century hit Normandy, which was even more ferocious than the, the storm of February 1905. So what would have happened? We would have landed everybody, the great day, 150,000 people, all the aircraft, all the, uh, all the armored vehicles, all the naval vessels involved. We would have projected all of that force onto Normandy. The next day, the, the worst storm of the 20th century would have hit. Everybody would have been ashore, bottled up. Uh, we couldn't protect them because the aircraft couldn't have flown, and the Germans would have had three days till the storm dissipated to destroy D-Day. So we are within a knife's edge of D-Day failing through nobody's fault but the weather. Because Eisenhower actually makes the right call very bravely and says, no, we'll go on the 6th. But there are a lot of people who said, why not wait? Why not wait for better weather? And we would have gone and it would have been a disaster. So the weather actually, the weather gods were, were really fickle and playing with us at, at that time. So as it is, we go on the 6th of June, 1944. And this is how many people remember it. Um, in in, Southampton, uh, in uh, Littlehampton on the south coast, uh, there was a hospital dance going on. And Sister Brenda McBride remembered uh, stepping out to cool herself down from the dance. And she saw hundreds of specks in the distance that multiplied into formations of planes. And soon the dance music was drowned out by waves of bombers, then troop carriers, some towing gliders that processed above. The noise grew deafening, the party was abandoned as our moon faces were upturned to the great V-shaped arrowheads made up of smaller arrowheads that stretched purposefully towards France. We all knew what it meant. Most of us would soon be following. And as the planes faded, a great drawn-out sigh went up, like the ah that follows a particularly good firework display. But I found that an incredibly emotional uh, memoir um, from Sister McBride, um, who I spoke to a, a while ago, and she actually then wrote up her story. Um, there was another um, young wren on the Isle of Wight who remembered she was walking back to her quarters about 11 o'clock at night. I'll never forget the sight. The whole sea was completely covered by craft of all shapes and sizes, all travelling to France. It was a bright night, so we could see very well, and it was a most impressive and rather frightening sight. We were told to sleep in our clothes that night. For a young girl, it was very exciting. Um, and that story is replicated right across um, the, the, the south coast of England from um, the bystanders who sort of saw the invasion, uh, the assault convoys assembling or witnessed it um, the, the following morning. Um, everybody came from lots of different harbours, over 100 different anchorages. This is Bertram Ramsey's genius. Um, they all collect together off the Isle of Wight and are then projected to the, the north coast of France. Douglas Riemann, whose novels you may remember, um, he died not so long ago. I did like his obituary. It said that he collected Napoleonic and Nelsonian memorabilia and had a cannon outside his front door uh, pointed permanently towards France. <laughs> He was a young man on a motor gunboat, shepherding these guys across the channel and left a lovely memoir in the Imperial War Museum of what it was like. Uh, and you suddenly reread these books, the novels, and actually there are quotes there from his memoirs. So you've got the truth of D-Day coming out in some of his fiction. Um, and this is the great um, assault fl uh, flotilla that, that's assembled uh, to take everybody across the channel or escort them. 
Uh, and I've shown there a young officer with his beard and his wavy stripes. Um, now, he has inflicted torture and punishment on probably nearly everybody in this room. Um, because he then, after the war, um, wrote, wrote up his memoirs with a very grim view of hum humanity. And when he became a novelist, uh, he wrote up his grim view of humanity in the form of Lord of the Flies. And that's Sub-Lieutenant Bill Golding, uh, who was in command of a rocket ship um, going across the Channel and was off Gold Beach uh, on the morning of D-Day. J.D. Salinger is another, another novelist uh, who takes part in the D-Day landings. Um, he's so confident when he lands on Utah Beach in the assault wave that he takes with him the manuscript typed up uh, on, uh, in, on pages of, of paper uh, in his backpack. He takes up the manuscript of what will become Catcher in the Rye. Um, now, any aspiring novelist who wants to stride through the surf with his precious manuscript on his back um, is, is facing, uh, well, you know, possible loss of everything, but it just shows you how much the Allied propaganda or, or the Allied uh, instilling of uh, final victory, uh, how complete that was for this young man to, to actually take something as precious as his, his manuscript book uh, ashore with him in the first wave. But Omaha Beach, we, we, we know, doesn't go nearly as well. Uh, and one of the pieces of evidence I, I tripped over to, to understand uh, and illustrate Normandy, and you see it quite, um, uh, I use it quite often uh, through the book, uh, is we, appear, we appealed in 1942 uh, over the medium of the BBC. I keep plugging in the BBC for very obvious reasons, you see. Um, now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, were, were you to be listening in 1942, you would have heard a public announcement broadcast that any of you who have been on holiday in France uh, might uh, care to uh, donate your uh, uh, postcards, uh, your holiday snaps, uh, brochures, and any maps from any holidays you've had in France before the war um, for the public good, because quite clearly we'll be uh, uh, operating in France in future months and years, uh, and this may help the great uh, occasion in the future. Um, at the end of the week, the BBC were rather ruining the, the ever-allowed broadcast. This is 1942, because they had 30,000 items delivered in the mail. Now, by 1944, the total had reached 10 million. Now, most of these went straight in the incinerator because they dealt with parts of France we weren't interested in, but an awful lot produced wonderful postcards like this. This is actually the western edge of Omaha Beach, and the postcard illustrates exactly where American Five Corps, the 1st and 29th Divisions, this is exactly the spot that Saving Private Ryan um, attempts to illustrate by film. Um, this is exactly the beach, and even the postcard tells us that the sand, go, the sea goes out at least a kilometre and leaves a good firm uh, beach uh, of sand uh, at low tide. Um, this is Omaha Beach, a bit further along. You can see the shingle quite clearly there. Nowadays, that's all bulldozed away, so it's very difficult to make this kind of uh, equation. Um, but we know that this photograph here, taken probably in the 1920s, equates to this scene taken in the afternoon of D-Day. And we've got a lot going on here. You can see abandoned landing craft, lots of barbed wire. There's a body strapped to a stretcher down there, bottom left. This is you know, history in the making, and it's exactly the same sort of stretch uh, of beach. Well, the postcards aided us in so many different ways. Here, for example, uh, is the area of Aramanche, where the artificial harbour uh, will be uh, uh, towed over to. 
Uh, and here's the scene again. You can see how very little it's changed. And this allowed us, with the help of, of special forces paddling ashore just to test depths and sand and things like that, to work out where everyone was going to go and then rehearse them beforehand. Well, Gold Beach um, is near Aramanche, was captured by uh, Brigadier Sir Alexander Stanier's 231 Brigade. Um, and at the end of D-Day, he went over to the big bunker complex that the uh, Allies had just captured. Uh, and on the 7th of June, he assembled all the prisoners uh, and said, do any of you speak English? Uh, and this NCO at the back of the room put up his hand and he said, my man, what was it like being under fire from the British Navy? And the German NCO said, well, Herr General, it was a bit like being in a cocktail shaker. And this most amused General Stanier. So he said, uh, oh, what do you know of cocktail shakers? Well, Herr General, I used to be head barman at the Savoy. <laughs> Before all this war business began. A little further along, uh, in the, the other brigade that also assaulted uh, Gold Beach, uh, Company Sergeant Major Stanley Hollis uh, was awarded the only v VC awarded on D-Day uh, for uh, his actions of bravery on two separate occasions. Um, I didn't meet him because he died of a heart attack in the, in the 1960s, but I met his company commander. Uh, and Ronnie Lofthouse, then a, a young major, um, was busy distributing contraceptives on the landing craft, to which St Stanley Hollis, well, what's to do, sir? I mean, we, uh, we, uh, I thought we were fighting the Germans, not doing something else to them. <laughs> And of course, the contraceptives were to put over the muzzle of all the weapons so that, so that they didn't get damaged by, by seawater. Um, but uh, Hollis, in, in a bit of a huff, went to the front of the landing craft, got behind a machine gun and let off two whole magazines at a German bunker he'd spied on the beach that they were heading for. Uh, and when they stormed the beach, everyone else in the landing craft was most amused to see that he'd actually suppressed the local bus shelter and it wasn't a, <laughs> a, a bunker at all. Um, but for the 50th anniversary, the Green Howards, which was his regiment, clubbed together to the, by the bus shelter, which is a wonderful gesture. But the, uh, the mayor of uh, Versailles didn't quite understand what was required, so he had the bus shelter restored, all the bullet holes patched up, the whole thing repainted, which wasn't quite what the Green Howards had in mind. Uh, and they've, they've spent the last 20 years um, taking it back to its, its war-torn state uh, of 1944. Well, this very well illustrates the value of these picture postcards. This is Juneau Beach, the, uh, the uh, Canadian uh, beach uh, at Bernier-sur-Mer. Uh, and apart from the French playing a game of bulls, what you need to focus on are the two very distinct villas, one behind uh, and one a bit further along, because these were where landing craft coxswain were told to aim for. And battalion COs were told, if you'll buy that, you're in exactly the right place. And here's the photographic evidence, because here is a column of German prisoners being marched past quite clearly exactly the same bunker. And this is now the um, uh, Maison des Canadiens. You can go there uh, on every D-Day, and its owner uh, puts a lighted uh, lantern on the porch, and every evening of D-Day carries it down into the waves. And it's, uh, it's a very moving uh, occasion, but that house still stands as testimony to D-Day. Uh, and the other, the other little villa um, that was on the left, here it is in another picture postcard, perhaps snapped before the First World War, Edwardian days. But here it is quite clearly 
uh, a little war-torn. Now, this photograph was taken by a Canadian war photographer just past 12.30 on D-Day morning. Uh, you can see the troops coming ashore. Some have got bicycles. They've breached the seawall there. There's a, an armoured vehicle, Royal Engineers, in the lee of the, uh, of the, uh, the villa. And there's a little assault bridge. You can see the men cl climbing up and over the seawall. It tells us so much. Well, one of the other people I met associated with D-Day uh, was this uh, chap. This is James Montgomery Doohan. Uh, he was, his war lasted a, a little less than 24 hours. He was wounded by friendly fire on the evening of D-Day because uh, he couldn't remember the password. Um, now, you all know him. You've all met him through the small screen. Because after the war, once, once he'd, uh, he'd, he'd, one of the things Friendly Fire did was remove a finger. So he got a job as an actor. And by the 1960s, he used to grace our television screens midweek, every, every night for hundreds and hundreds of weeks because he was Scotty from Star Trek. Uh, and when I went to a Star Trek convention, he looked at me and he said, no one has ever been to a Star Trek convention without an interest in Star Trek. And you've come to ask me about my D-Day. Well done. That's remarkable detective work. And he signed, signed the picture for me. Um, uh, and we had a great chat. So it just shows you, you know, so many people involved. And we come back to Sword Beach. Um, and this is somewhere we couldn't assault because we knew there was a German position there. And again, the postcard helped us understand this. Uh, and this, in fact, is the position that I showed you a little earlier on. Uh, and a little further along... It was this distinct house that led, that dominated an avenue down to the beach. You can see the, uh, the coast just in the distance there. Uh, and again, a British sergeant, Sergeant Midgley, at about midday, took this picture of what is quite clearly the same building. And you can see the two merged together uh, in the bottom, bottom left down there. Uh, and uh, a, a little further along, just round the corner, this is where uh, the uh, first South Lanks landed, uh, their CO was killed, shot by a sniper, um, his regimental signals officer at his side, here he is, uh, was, uh, was later wounded but saw his colonel killed and ever after told his young son, uh, who, uh, Michael, who you can see in his arms, about the bravery of his colonel. And Michael is Lord Ashcroft, who's the world's foremost collector of Victoria Crosses, uh, and the inspiration for his interest in military history came from the D-Day story of his colonel. And a little later on, uh, a little further down the coast, is the uh, statue of Bill Millen with whom we started. Uh, and Bill, when he was dying not so long ago, turned to his son and said, it's a great shame no one will be able to play the pipes on the sands of Normandy. Uh, and John Millen took up the challenge and now plays instead of his father. And there we are, a quick whirlwind through D-Day. Thank you very much. Indeed. That was Peter Caddick-Adams speaking at our 2019 Winchester History Weekend. If you enjoyed this talk, we'll be running lectures from our History Weekends every Saturday on the podcast for the next few weeks. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for another of our Everything You Wanted to Know podcasts on the Spanish Civil War.
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.